This may shock you, but Canada has the second highest per capita use of opioids in the world. Opioid-related deaths here are more prevalent today than 10 years ago, especially out in B.C. and in the West provinces. And it's moving here to Toronto. We have to do something about this. Today, new guidelines were published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And a principal investigator for the Guideline Development, Associate Professor of Anesthesia at McMaster's Michael G. DeGroote School of Medicine, Dr. Jason Bassa, is joining us on the line today. Hey, doctor, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm happy that you guys have uh, finally got to these recommendations, the new guidelines. What are what are some of the highlights of the uh, key recommendations? Uh, some of the highlights are that opioids are not first-line therapy for chronic pain. So we now have good evidence showing us that there are a number of competing therapies that are equally as effective and yet do not have the kind of associated harms. So we've made a strong recommendation that patients dealing with chronic pain should really look to optimize their care with non-opioids before they consider a trial of opioids. Uh, If they are going to consider a trial of opioids, they need to understand that they are at particular risk for bad outcome. If they're presenting with an active substance use disorder, history of a substance use disorder, or another active psychiatric disorder, If they still decide that they'd like to try a course of opioids for their chronic pain, we know now that higher doses mean higher risk. And so we've made a weak recommendation to stay below 50 milligrams morphine equivalent and a strong recommendation to stay below 90. And if we're looking at the so-called legacy patients, individuals with chronic pain already on high-dose opioids, they're a different population we've made a weak recommendation that they should be approached for a trial of tapering if their current dose is above 90, but it needs to be done on an individual basis. We don't want to put people into opioid withdrawal, Mm. and some patients are not going to be able to come below the 90, so it's as low as they can go and tolerate the, uh, the, the, the side effects. Doctor, for the sake of clarification, what's a weak recommendation? It's an excellent question. Uh, So we make strong recommendations where we have high-quality evidence, and this could be considered uh, more of a just-do-it recommendation. Where we don't have high-quality evidence, where the evidence is weaker, we have to be more cautious about the recommendation. And so we reflect that by calling it a weak recommendation. And the way to interpret this is it's an it-depends recommendation, and it depends based on the values and preferences of the individual patient So that's when shared care decision-making becomes particularly important when you're looking at a weak recommendation. Uh, Do we not have evidence because we didn't see this opioid addiction problem coming? Uh, Well, we were were given different evidence for a long time. By Uh, the pharmaceutical companies? Yes. So there was a campaign of marketing that were really positioning opioids as an effective uh, uh, treatment for chronic pain with virtually no risk of addiction. They were putting out figures of less than 1%. We now understand that this risk was grossly understated. Uh, True risk of addiction from being prescribed opioids for chronic pain is uh, probably somewhere at least around 6%. Uh, risk of physical dependence becomes a reality for almost everybody. Uh, so now that we have a better understanding of the risk, I think that the prescribing is going to reflect a, a greater degree of caution. Why have doctors avoided the, you know, um, turning to uh, non-opioid uh, treatments for pain in the past? 
Well, I, I think uh, there is sort of limited awareness about what effective alternatives could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think resources become an issue as well. It's all fine and well to tell somebody, uh, why don't you go try a course of mindfulness therapy or graduated supervised exercise, cognitive behavioral therapy. These things aren't always available. If they are available, sometimes they require out-of-pocket expenses to make up. So I think availability of non-opioid resources has uh, has an important role to play in explaining why they haven't been accessed as much as they perhaps should have been. How much of the opioid problem and this addiction problem that we have here in Canada is due to the cash-strap system? You know, doctors wanting the in and out because they just can't afford to spend a lot of time with you talking about these things. It's another great point, and I know when I speak to clinicians, they understand that these are more complex patients with with greater needs, but they also understand that the amount of reimbursement that they're provided is based on often a 15-minute uh, consultation. That's what they have. Uh, and so to try to really get into the very complicated situations that many people with chronic pain present with, there's simply not enough time to do it. So I think uh, even finding a way to appropriately reimburse clinicians to really give these uh, cases the kind of attention they need is, is another issue that has to be considered. Now, I know that the recommendations were just published today, but have you had any initial feedback from many doctors? Yes, uh, we we have. I would say that um, in general, the response has been quite positive. I think there's always a concern that the recommendations will be misapplied or people will lose the nuance between a strong and a weak recommendation and try to take a sort of a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, So we're really working against that kind of misapplication. And we've made a clear statement within the guideline, for example, that any of our weak recommendations are not candidates for standards of practice uh, because we just don't have the level of evidence required to, you know, make that a uh, always-do-it type recommendation. Now that the recommendations are out, uh, where do we go from here? Well, guidelines don't self-implement. As we learned from the 2010 guideline, a lot of the uh, trends around uh, uh, opioid poisoning and overdoses continued to go up. Uh, So what we really need to do now is embark on a national campaign to uh, get the information out there, help get it into practice, uh, look at strategies to improve the uptake and implementation of these recommendations, and then more importantly, measure to see if we're actually reversing some of these trends, see if we can reduce the amount of opioid overdoses, the amount of prescribing in general, and the amount of high-dose prescribing that occurs. So I think that's an important follow-up component to really get the impact out of this work. Doctor, I appreciate you joining us on the show and um, bringing to light some of the recommendations. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. All right. Have a great day. That's Dr. Jason Bussa, who is a principal investigator for the Guideline Development